Hi, this is the Voice of the Child podcast and my guest is Lord Alfred Dubbs. Lord Dubbs, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. It's a pleasure. Lord Dubbs, you were so close. The legal commitment you asked the government to make to ensure refugee children had a safe passage to be reunited with family members in the UK was approved in the Lords, but in the final vote in the Commons it was set aside. Many of our listeners will be aware of your campaign and, and what you've been doing in terms of child refugees, but some will be new to your work. So for, for them, what's the backdrop to this campaign? Right. Can I take a step or two back to 2016, when we learned that there were 95,000 unaccompanied child refugees somewhere in Europe, mainly in Italy, in northern France and, and in Greece, and indeed, shockingly, 10,000 children, according to Interpol, had disappeared in Italy. So there was a, there was a bill going through Parliament and I moved an amendment that Britain should take some of these children. The, the key was these were children who didn't have family in Britain, all right? And that got passed eventually. It, it, it was a bit complicated. The government didn't like it and they wanted me to withdraw it. I mean, it passed the Lords. Um, it got defeated in the Commons, came back to the Lords, and then when, by the time it got back to the Commons, the government had accepted the amendment. However, the government then said that because there were not enough local authorities that could provide foster places, that they would cap the total at 480, which was a long way away from my original intention of several thousand. That was that amendment. If we can fast forward to 2018, there is a European treaty, an EU treaty, under which a child refugee in one EU country can apply to join relatives in another. So a Syrian boy in France could join an uncle in, in the UK. And we were worried that when we left the EU, this would die. So I moved an amendment in the Lords to to the effect the government should negotiate to continue the provisions of family reunion for those children after we left the EU. That that won by quite a large majority in the Lords, was accepted by the government in the Commons. Well and good. Fast forward to uh, just before Christmas, when the government introduced after the election a new uh, bill, a withdrawal bill, and they took out of that bill the provisions in the 2018 Act, the provisions which said we should continue with family reunion for child refugees. And frankly, I found that shocking. And many other people found that deeply, deeply shocking. A, how can one be against family reunion? And then how can one reverse the decision made by Parliament? So that, um, um, that, that, that was passed by the Lords. It got, the, the Commons had already voted against it. It went to the Lords. We passed it by, by a big majority, went back to the Commons, they voted it down again. And, and the government gave me a number of excuses for not doing it. They said, and the initial line was, they wanted negotiating flexibility. Well, frankly, my view is, I don't know what there is to negotiate about in family reunion, except to get the EU to agree we continue. Uh, so uh, negotiating flexibility seemed a very odd one indeed, to use children as as, as bartering chips or bargaining chips. So then um, um, I was invited by to meet three ministers, uh, uh, three Hamas ministers. They were armed with seven officials behind them, including one from the cabinet office, and there was me. So I thought the odds of 10 to 1 weren't bad, but there we are. <laughs> anyway, they tried to persuade me, and they said a number of things, 
um, one of them was they said it wasn't it wasn't in the right bill in 2018, so it shouldn't be in this new one. Then they said it could go in the immigration bill, which we haven't yet got. Then they said it didn't have to be in a bill at all. It could be done under the immigration rules, which is not right. That doesn't deal with international stuff. Um, and then they said, well, we'll do it anyway because we believe in it. Don't you trust us? So I said, look, as individuals, of course I trust you. Uh, but you might not be in your jobs, you might be promoted within a couple of months. What assurance is there the government will continue with this? So the, the answer is, I don't trust the government. So you have said, as you said just now, that you, you trust individual ministers, but not the government. What's the difference, Lord Dubbs? Well, I suppose not much, really, to be honest. But I, I don't like to be discourteous to people and say to their faces, I, I don't trust them. Look, it, it may be they were quite sincere when they, when they spoke to me, but it, it was a very odd situation that they, um, that, that, that they were trying to stop something which Parliament had already passed. And, and they kept saying, but we do believe in child refugees. But all they offered tangibly was that a minister would stand up in Parliament in two months' time and a, and a minister would say, uh, would say what the government's policy was. Now, you know, the fact is, every victory on behalf of child refugees, we've had to win. The government didn't concede them, we've had to win. Uh, and I said to the ministers, look, uh, 20, 20, in 2016, we, we, um, uh, the, my amendment was passed despite the government. In 2018, my amendment was passed despite the government. So you can't blame me for saying, you, you know, once we've got something on the statute book, we want to keep it on the statute book. So, um, uh, you know, I, I'm just waiting to see what the government will do. However, the process and a lot of anger and a lot of ill feeling did a number of things. It revealed to me that a lot of conservatives in both houses, well, they haven't voted that way, they support the Family Union for Child Refugees. And I've had three ministers, not the ones I spoke to, but other ministers who said to me, keep going with this. I've had conservative peers who don't understand why the government are doing this. So there's quite a lot of support behind the scenes, which I hope has brought some pressure to bear on the government. So the government made some commitments of what they would do, so we'll have to hold them to it. Commitments about that they're still keen on child refugees and family reunion. So we'll have to see. We've got something. They said it in, in the debate and it's done in Hansard and we'll have to hold them to it. So what do you expect that commitment to look like? Will it be a legislative instrument or will it be a policy proposal? Well, I suspect there'll be a policy proposal because they said to me uh, what, why they thought legislation wasn't necessary. Look, there's something... Uh, the sub-feeling they had that we shouldn't put into legislation an obligation on the government to legislate. They don't like that in legislation. Well, maybe that's not neat and tidy, but the fact is we're talking about something more important than neat and tidy bits of legislation. We're talking about some fundamental human rights principles. And frankly, if you're in opposition and you've won a vote and got it accepted by both houses of parliament, you don't back off by, by their saying, well, there might be some other way of doing it in the future. That was a very poor excuse. So that's why I was very unhappy about it and a lot of other people were. Will you be happy if the government comes back with just a policy proposal? No, it has to be quite tangible. It has to be tangible as to they need to spell out how they're going to do it and what they're going to do and so on. Uh, if they say they're going to negotiate uh, to effectively bring back the amendment with, uh, without it being in an act of parliament uh, and they give me a clear undertaking, then I suppose I'd be happy. But then what was all this about? It was all about nothing. It was all, it was, it was all about a lot of emotional energy. Look, if the go I say to the government, 
why act like you're mean and nasty if you claim you're not mean and nasty? Because if you act like you're mean and nasty, people think you're mean and nasty, and you have to prove you're not. And the onus is on the government to demonstrate something humanitarian and something decent. Uh, and all I can say is we'll be, we'll be holding them to it. And some conservatives who agree with me also say behind the scenes they will hold the government to it. So I'm hoping the result of all this uh, debate, this argument, this public feeling, which has aroused quite a lot of a, a lot of attention, I hope the result of all that will, will will mean the government will have to concede something which they mightn't have conceded without all the arguments and public debates we've had. So, what will you do if the government remains silent on this particular issue? Well, of course, you know they've got a big majority in the Commons. I think we'll just have to find other ways of raising it and bringing pressure to bear. I mean, we can't keep quiet on it. It's just that one needs a, a, a bit of legislation onto which to attach an amendment. Uh, well, we can do it anyway, and I think we'll raise it through questions and in debates, and, and we'll keep going. I, I think they'll be sorry they started down this path because, uh, frankly, um, it, it, it will cause them a lot of... Uh, it, it will cause them to be regarded badly by a lot of people, because I think essentially British people are, are humanitarian, and I think a majority of British people actually support the idea of, of doing more for child refugees. I'm not saying we should take every child refugee in Europe or in, or in the region, but I'm saying we can do a lot better than we've done. I think we should do our share, and we're not near to doing our share yet. You've been to several refugee camps, um, both in France and in the Greek islands. What did you see there? Well, I, yes, I went to, well, I've been to Calais about four times. The first time when the jungle was there, uh, most of it, some of it had already been cleared. Uh, and I found that a very shocking experience, as I found every visit to a refugee camp deeply, deeply painful and shocking. Uh, we saw young people desperate, desperate to, 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 to come to the UK, people willing to risk their lives by going on the back of a lorry or, or coming across on a dinghy. Uh, and of course, my fear is that if the government don't have legal paths to safety, then the only thing left is traffickers, uh, traffickers taking people on dangerous routes. Some, some of which mean children lose their lives. So I saw that. I also saw something very shocking. There used to be a shopping street in the middle of the jungle, and that had displays of tear gas canisters and rubber bullets. And I said, "What are they for?" And people said to me, "Well." The then French government was very worried that the National Front were quite strong in the Calais area and they were determined to act tough, to which I can only comment that acting tough and behaving like the National Front does not defeat the National Front at all. So that was a very traumatic thing to see and quite shocking. Anyway, I, I, we had the conditions in Calais were pretty awful. I went, I've been three times, the most recent time there were just kids and people sleeping under tarpaulins, uh, under the trees worried about the police harassing them and hassling them, uh, and a general, a general sense of, you know, despair, really. Um, and I, just to hope they can get across by some illegal means if they, can't, if they can't do it legally. The Greek islands were just as bad. Well, Athens wasn't too bad, but going to Lesbos was absolutely shocking. I went to, there's a refugee camp there called Moria, which I think was designed for 2,000 and had 10,000, in it at the time, it's got more than that now. And next to it is an overflow camp called the Olive Tree, and that had several thousand. Um, we were told by Médecins Sans Frontières in Athens that the camp in Moria, at night there's no security, there's no safety, that uh, children are sexually harassed, that some of the boys are raped at night, 
terrible, and in the adjacent camp, just awful, sleeping, sleeping rough, and so on, and with no hope. Uh, more arriving every day, and uh, desperate, and the Greeks can't can't cope anyway. So the numbers are just too much for them to deal with, and no countries are helping them. So that was pretty awful. I also went to Jordan, which is a uh, a better organised camp, a place called Zatari. It had eighty thousand people in it. Better organised because it had water supply and sanitation and it had prefab buildings. Um, but I was talking to um, uh, a 17-year-old boy who'd had his education in the camp. <coughs> and I said, what now? And he said, well, I can't get a job in the camp. I can't get a job outside the camp. What do I do? And it was a lack of hope. And I think a lack of hope characterises characterizes refugees in camps all over the world. And... You know, I think human beings can put up with bad physical conditions if there's some hope for them. Whether there's no hope, it's absolutely desperate. And one of the things about giving them hope is if we say to some of them there's a legal path for some of you to safety in Britain, to join your families or, or, or whatever, uh, then I think it does give people a bit of hope. But slamming the door on hope is a terrible thing to do. Now, you yourself are, are a former child refugee after having fled the Nazis as a child on the kinder transport. How has that experience influenced how you campaign today? I suppose, objectively, um, the, the humanitarian argument on behalf of child refugees should not depend upon the personal experiences of the individuals putting the argument forward. However, it would be um, wrong of me to say that I'm not far more emotionally involved than I would otherwise be. So I suppose I have that emotional involvement in the sense that um, you know these are young people who fled wars, persecution, seeing their parents sometimes killed, uh, and they fled you know, on dangerous journeys and they're hoping for, for a better life. Now, I had a very easy journey. I was on a kinder transport train to two days, but in that sense it was an easier journey, even though I was fleeing the Holocaust. But uh, I, I, I think... I say to myself, I've always got to remember that, you know, young people come here and they need some chance for a decent life. And if they can't get here, what, what future is there for them? Well, flipping the issue a little on its head, um, there have been reports from the Refugee Council that whilst adult refugees in the UK can sponsor family members to join them from abroad, this isn't the case with child refugees. And there are concerning reports that children are being blocked from reunification with their parents who are abroad. Is this something you're keeping an eye on? Well, certainly. First of all, there's a problem that when the children come here, if they get to the age of 18, they have no further security anyway, uh, and they could be uh, returned to the countries they came from, which would be awful, because for most of them, it would not be safe at all for them to go back to, to where they came from. So, so that's one thing. I think, secondly, I think it is very hard if a child is here, if that child can't be joined by, by his or her immediate family, I think, I think that is awful because it means families are still divided. Now, there have been private members' bills, both in the Commons and the Lords, to try and achieve this, but they've been blocked. Private members' bills have a difficult job getting through Parliament anyway. Uh, but I think it's still an ongoing issue that there should be at least rights for a limited number of family members to join a, to join a, a child that is already here, yes. You've engaged in a lot of debates over the last couple of weeks in the House of Lords. Um, there was one particular debate on the eve of the vote um, to your amendment. Can I ask you about the mood in the House of Lords during that debate and any comments from other peers that stood out for you in particular? 
Well, I think it was a very positive mood. I, I, I was quite, quite heartened that there was a very positive mood. Hardly anybody spoke, spoke against, and, and then they were having a real job to do it. Now, in the Commons, there were more voices against uh, from having led Hansard, but, uh, the, the report of the debates. But certainly in the Lords, I thought there was a very positive mood. Very few people were against, and indeed privately, quite a few people said that, that, that they supported the amendment, so we had quite a big majority. So that was encouraging. Uh, and then I hoped, of course, the Commons would, in looking at it again, would be more supportive, but they weren't to be. There was a, there's a very hard line coming from Number 10 these days, and they don't want any dissenting votes at all. But I don't think that'll hold for too long. Uh, you know, the government can't keep that type of iron discipline on its people <coughs> if there are principles arguing the other way. Well, there was another debate which took place in the House of Lords after the vote was taken um, on the 22nd of January, and Baroness Deitch was at that debate, and she said, My Lords, we note sadly that the so-called Dubs Amendment has been rejected, but I am sure that many of us feel, like me, that the Noble Lord, Lord Dubs, will go down in history as a champion for refugee children, and that he is an outstanding example of the contribution that can be made to British life by admitting a refugee child. Lord Dubs, has the government been short-sighted? Well, first of all, I find that embarrassing, that, that, <laughs> that public comment. I, you know, I I'm, appreciate uh, Baroness saying it, but it, it is a bit embarrassing to be picked out in such personal terms. Uh, has the government... Uh, I've forgotten your question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I embarrassed you. Has the government been short-sighted by yeah. setting aside this policy issue? Uh, I, I think government been extremely short-sighted because if they keep saying their policy is to, is to allow child refugees to have family union here, then, then why act as if they didn't support that? Uh, I think they've lost a lot of goodwill. I think a lot of people in this country don't understand why they've done it. They think it's shabby of the government. And, and, uh, and, and I hope it's all to no purpose. I hope the government will, in the end, be forced to do, do something. But, you know, we have to see what the, what the, what the government does. There, there is an anti, anti-immigrant, anti-refugee mood in the country, and the government are capitalising on that. And I, I, think, I think that's very sad. I, th- I think uh, being a refugee is a fundamental human right, protected by the Geneva Convention, uh, and I think a humanitarian attitude to refugees can only enhance this country as it, as it, enhances, uh, as it enhances the rights of individuals. Well, it may take a little time to implement safe passage and perhaps legislation to protect child refugees as well. But what can people around the UK do right now to help? Ah, right, good. Well, first of all, they need to make their voice heard. Uh, I appreciate what you're doing. It's all extremely helpful, uh, this sort of interview being publicised. I think people ought to keep speaking out on behalf of child refugees by writing letters to newspapers, by letting their voice be heard. Public opinion is, in the end, what makes a difference. Public opinion tipped the balance in favour of my First Amendment in 2016. It's tipping the balance now, and public opinion, I always say to myself, public opinion is absolutely crucial in this. Uh, Secondly, members of the public could write to their MPs and ask them to support family reunion for child refugees. If the MPs are already doing it, pat them on the back, and if they're not doing it, ask them why not. But keep the pressure going. And the more likely that the MP is a government supporter and doesn't want this, the more important it is to keep pressure going. Uh, you know, so I, people tend to write to the people who are sympathetic and not to people who are unsympathetic. It should be the other way about. So I think that's important. Next, I think it's, it's good to talk to your local councils. 
uh, local councillors and ask them what the council is doing about child refugees. It doesn't affect the family reunion so much, it affects the other children who don't have family here. But again, it's important to keep the pressure going. And if people are members of organisations, whether it's trade unions or women's institutes or political parties, I think they should use those as a vehicle for putting forward the argument. Lord Dubs, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and for amplifying the voice of the child. Well, thank you very much for your interest and thank you for giving me a chance to say what I've just said. Appreciate that. Thank you.